let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, today, we, today we come to the end uh, of really kind of this big long section uh, of this first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, so we're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 4 and kind of close out, um, you know, this major, major topic of conversation. I think that there's some stuff in here that I want to uh, point out that I think that we can, if we're listening, we can uh, maybe have, um, have an understanding of the, the, some of the things that we might uh, expect and perhaps even grow an appetite for when it comes to being a part of a church, right? I mean, think about, uh, we're all kind of coming from different places, um, you know, experientially, uh, from different places emotionally, from different places even spiritually. Uh, but when we, when we do ultimately come together, you know, as a church, uh, whatever, however you might define the frequency of that uh, participation or how deep that participation uh, that you may be particularly experiencing right now, uh, there, there is kind of this question of, you know, why, you know, why do we do this? Why, why is this so important? And so I think we're going to, like, read between some of the lines uh, with what Paul has to say here, uh, but maybe discover some things that we ought to come to expect from a life lived uh, within spiritual community, like a church like this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm just going to read verses 14 to 21, and then uh, we'll go back through it a little more slowly. Uh, so Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Now, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, right, because we had the, the, the giant Christmas party last week. And, uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I, we, we were looking at uh, some of what Paul was showing the Corinthian church were these, the, these differences in how they were, they were living out their lives. Uh, Paul was pointing out that the Corinthian church had come to live as if they had already been exalted, right? As if they had already been coronated and were now ruling uh, the world. And uh, meanwhile, Paul and people like Paul were continuing to live in weakness and powerlessness, um, uh, constantly embattled by uh, the world and confrontations and, and uh, because the kingdom of Christ had not yet fully come. And so while you had, you had a church that was sort of uh, willing to live in this, uh, this kind of uh, this risen uh, and, and, and powerful and almost elitist uh, type of Christianity, uh, you, had, you had others who were really truly identifying with the suffering Messiah as they themselves continued to suffer in this world. Uh, and and so, uh, so Paul says here, he says, I, you know, listen, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. Um, for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. Many of you know Timothy was uh, Paul's protege, uh, kind of this next generation of Christian leaders that that followed on, under and uh, studied under Paul, uh, traveled pretty extensively with Paul, was uh, part of the establishment of various churches, and so had become uh, a person that Paul had a tremendous amount of trust and faith in. And so what Paul did in the fact that he was unable to go and visit Corinth this, this particular time, he had sent Timothy along. Probably even prior to the writing of this letter, Timothy had gone on ahead. 
Um, so he says, this is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, um, so now he, he's again looking at the, the Corinthian church. He says, now some, uh, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Um, so, you know, Paul begins, again, this letter uh, with the, um, <laughs> I guess, encouragement. He says, listen, I'm not writing this to shame you, um, but to warn you as my dear children. And so Paul makes this distinction between uh, leveraging something like uh, casting shame on people uh, it makes a difference between that and, you know, like what it means to honestly come alongside somebody uh, and warn them. So, uh, you know, Paul is in the business of spiritual instruction, of course, right? Like he is, uh, he is this person that has come and helped establish the church. And, and so he has some degree of uh, authority. And uh, again, remember, at, at this particular time, when Paul writes this, it's not like, it's not like the, the church in Corinth, it's not like they had the scriptures like we do, right? Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have the first letter of Corinthians like we do. <laughs> Paul hadn't written it, right? Paul was just now writing it. And so they, they didn't gather Sunday after Sunday um, and, and like, you know, kind of sit around and, and read what we get to just sort of take for granted as, uh, you know, the New Testament scriptures. And so uh, there was still a, a tremendous degree of uh, importance or prominence placed on the authority that the apostles had uh, within the life of the church, right? Because um, uh, they, they, were, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and they had been given custody and responsibility for seeing the gospel of Jesus proclaimed. And up until the point where, you know, the church had something that was sort of written more permanent, from which they could continue to go back to for instruction, uh, people like Paul had a lot of authority. And so Paul's involved in this work of spiritual instruction. Uh, not only Paul, but others, I'm sure, were commissioned within the Corinthian church. You know, there were, um, there were people that would have had uh, responsibilities for leadership and responsibilities for teaching, uh, things like that. And, uh, and so, so Paul says, listen, when it comes to spiritual instruction, when it comes to helping people grow spiritual, the, the, the end game isn't to shame people. Now, there's been a lot of religion over the years that has been built on the, 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 the power of shame, right? The power of isolating people based on uh, certain things uh, that either uh, identify people as in or out, right? Right? And, and the power of that in or outness, the power of uh, leveraging things like shame could uh, oftentimes be very motivating. I mean, who wants to feel shame, right? Who wants to feel rejection from their community? Who wants to feel, who wants to feel like they're an outcast um, uh, or, or that, they're not, that they're not part of um, uh, the rest of the community? And so not only within religion, but just in society, 
uh, throughout the history of mankind, uh, things like shame have been used as an agent of power um, against people. And Paul was, and the Corinthian church, they were no stranger to this. I mean, they very much lived in a shame and honor uh, culture where so much of your life was sort of defined by, you know, did you live or act shamefully? Did you bring shame upon your name or shame upon your family's name? Or did you bring honor upon uh, your name and your family's name? So Paul's, Paul's end game isn't to shame people. It is really um, that he has this heartfelt desire for their well-being. Like if you could just imagine uh, Paul, if he were able to be present in their midst or if he were here kind of talking to us today, listen, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be looking at us with a desire to sort of isolate us into categories, you know, those that were in and those that were out. But rather, he'd be looking on, and, and, uh, on us, and, and his heart would be so full of a desire to see um, uh, for your best interests to be served, for my best interests to be served, whatever, whatever that may be, like wherever, uh, wherever may, we may be in our lives, whatever may be going on in our lives. And, um, and you know, if you're going to be a part of, a church, a part of spiritual community, I think one of the things you ought to look for is, does this church, do these people have my best interests at heart? That's a really good question, right? Um, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have been a part of a religious experience or a spiritual community where it felt like there was something else at stake that wasn't your best interests? You ever been part of that? Right? I'll bet there's a lot of us who have from time to time, been involved even in religious spaces where there was something else that was more important than the best interests of the people that made up that church. Listen, one of the things that we want to do is be the kind of community that considers the people, the people that are part of that community, as unfathomably important and worthwhile. Um, as if I could just kind of steal a little bit from the heart of God, um, uh, ones who are completely, and again, unfathomably loved. Right? Like, you and I, we all sit here today, whether we know it or not, unapologetically and unconditionally loved by God. Some of you know that. Uh, some of you don't, right? Some of you, um, for whatever reason, like you've just not been able to kind of come to this place where you've experienced or where you can know uh, how much and to what degree God loves you. Um, where before any measurement has been taken on how good you are or how good you aren't, that God loves you. I, I mean, I, I, I can't even, I, I can't get us to the place where I could actually out-describe the love that God has for us. And isn't it a shame that so many people, in their experience of, religion and religious places, in their experience of being in environments where supposedly the God who created us 
The God who, during this season, we celebrate as one who is willing to come and enter into the very middle of our mess in order to save us, isn't it a shame how ill-equipped we've often been in helping people to understand and identify and experience the incredible love that God has for us. And instead, unfortunately, because of our inability to do that, a lot of times, you know, a church has resorted to things or a religious, um, a religious community has, has resorted to things like just shame, leveraging shame, right, um, of understanding that there are certain behaviors that are, in fact, good and bad. Like, I'm not here to say that there isn't a difference between right and wrong, uh, between good and evil. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as sin. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as our willful rebellion against God's best for us. But if you find yourself in an environment where it's shame, that's, you, that, that's the tool to try to regulate or to curb or to modify the behavior of the people that are a part of that community, you're, that's just not a, that's not a healthy place. It's not... That, that's not a healthy way uh, to see God working in our lives. And so um, Paul, Paul he, he just wants to know, he's like, listen, I'm, I didn't write this to shame you. Now, Paul says a lot of hard things in this letter. Um, you know, just wait in a couple weeks, right? I mean, like, um, it's going to look like Paul's doing nothing but, like, trying to shame them, like trying to make them feel a little embarrassed for some of the things that they have let go on in their community, right? And he already has, and we've talked about, such things over the last uh, several weeks, right? There were, there were some, some pretty tough things going on in the church that the people of the church needed to be honest with themselves about and get right and change. Paul says, I didn't write this to shame you. I, I wrote this to warn you as my dear children. So Paul wants change for sure. Paul, Paul knows that change is necessary, that the church needs to change. Uh, if we were to think about ourselves, like we know that there are things about us as a church that need to change. And we haven't figured it all out. I, I doubt we'll ever get to that place where we will have figured it all out, right? I mean, we've got a long way to go. It's a, it's a messy church with messy people, right? And until, until you and I, you know, figure out how to um, eradicate the messes of our lives, we're going to constantly Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And throughout the week, we're going to keep bringing our messes into this place. And so... In that, in this community, we're going to be a messy church. And so we've got things to figure out. Change is necessary. And so um, Paul, in the things that he's pointing out, he says, listen, I wrote these things to warn you as my dear children, right? He's, again, just kind of appealing to them from a, 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 a kind of an emotional and perhaps even vulnerable place. It's like, listen, my, my dear children, I, he truly and desperately wants the very best uh, for this church, despite how they've treated him, interestingly, despite how badly they've treated him, despite how they've mistreated him, probably for an extended period of time, still his heart just yearns for their best. Um, when Paul says, I warn you, um, the idea behind this word is something like admonishment. Uh, one of the things I just wanted for us to understand and perhaps even um, embrace in our own lives is a willingness from time to time to be admonished. You know, we need 
admonishment in our lives. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good, I should say, I don't care how good you think you are. We all need admonishment in our lives from time to time. Now, what is admonishment? When I, when I say that, when Paul says, I want to warn you as my dear children, I think he's conveying something like this. This is kind of a definition I wrote for admonishment. It's a loving appeal flavored with caution. A loving appeal flavored with caution. How many of you have ever made a bad decision? How many of you have ever, like, you've just, the, you know, in the choice between one or two things, or maybe more, like, you, you chose the, the uh, what might have seemed better at the time or felt better at the time, but ultimately really probably proved not to be the best thing at the time. Um, if you had the privilege of growing up in a, you know, a, a, you know, a fairly well-balanced home where, you know, your parents kind of tried to do their best, there's a good chance that from time to time as you were growing and, you know, your wings were starting to spread and you were starting to gain a little more freedom in your life, there were probably times where you started to kind of push the boundaries and try to discover exactly where um, your parents' authority ended and yours began, right? Like, and so um, the, the growing up years is all about jockeying for, those, uh, for that position. Um, but maybe from time to time, like, your parents who loved you who probably more than anybody else in the world had the best intents and hopes and desires for your life than anybody else. Um, perhaps they, they might see certain decisions that you were making or um, certain concessions you were making in your life or, or certain behaviors, you know, that were becoming kind of part of your, um, your habit, your routine. And maybe your parents came alongside you and admonished you, like warned you of, of um, like I said, made this loving appeal flavored with caution. What does that mean? Well, it, the appeal is, listen, um, I, you know, I, I love you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. And so I, I want to appeal to you to think about what you're doing. I want, I want to appeal to you to think about where you're going. I want, I want to appeal to you to think about, like, how you're navigating through um, these particular circumstances of your life. Why? Well, because if I, if I may, I have a word of caution for you. And maybe as a parent, you know, you've seen your kids kind of like going down the same road that you went down years before. Right? So you've already learned the lessons. Um, you've already learned the hard way, and you want to spare your child whom you love from also experiencing, you know, the lesson that comes by way of the hard way. You want to spare them that, right? And so, and so your appeal comes with a word of caution, right? This is kind of how we do spiritual instruction. And my hope is that as we are growing, as we are maturing, that you and I actually start more and more embracing something like admonishment. Uh, because that's not natural, right? Like, it's not natural when, when somebody comes to you, and as soon as we start to feel like they have something critical to say, or they have something against 
uh, maybe the direction that we're going, like immediately we're put off by it. But to grow spiritually, to grow in maturity, is to embrace admonishment. Um, admonishment isn't criticism. It's not this harsh judgment. It's not even an ultimatum. Again, if I could just maybe like bring to the surface, um, and I apologize if this creates any trauma for any of you, but maybe you've had the experience of um, these very, very harsh kinds of judgments and maybe even ultimatums within you know, spiritual communities that you've been part of or churches that you've been part of in the past. You know, ultimatum was set. And, um, you know, it's like, hey, either you do this or, you know, this is going to happen to you. Um, I think that part of, like, what we want to accomplish as a, uh, as a spiritual community, as brothers and sisters, as a family of God, is the opportunity and the permission to admonish one another. Um, that is to, to be able to counsel one another. But here's kind of the tricky thing about admonishment. See, admonishment, while it's a loving appeal flavored with caution, what it does is it recognizes and preserves and dignifies everybody's free will. You see, what, what it does is, uh, and, and again, like if I were to go back to the example of, you know, parents raising growing children, right? Some of you have already experienced what it means to like lose control of your child, right? Like that, um, again, like as, as, as the authority structure is starting to change and morph as your child is entering into adolescence and ultimately early adulthood and then adulthood, like you lose more and more authority as time goes on. And, 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 and what there is there is a recognition. It's like, well, you know, my kid's going to do what my kid's going to do, right? That's, like, that's, that's the way it works. I, I, got, I got to do that, right? There was, a, uh, there was a, a phase in my life where my behaviors and my lives were highly regulated by people that were in authority over me. But that changed over time. And, now, and so now today I'm looking, at, I'm looking at a bunch of adults, right? A whole bunch of adults, a whole bunch of free willers, Right? Like you and I, we have free will. And listen, while, um, while there may be a you know, particular vocation or calling uh, that, that, that I sort of live in as a pastor of a church, pastor of a, a, a spiritual community, and some of, you have, some of you have embraced kind of like what that means and what that feels like uh, to have, you know— um, some schmuck like me up here, you know, kind of talking from time to time and, and, and teaching from the Word of God and, and, and perhaps even allow that instruction to have some weight and bearing and significance in your life. And, and you know, I'm so grateful um, for that. But, like, listen, ultimately, I, I don't—I'm not the boss of you, right? Nobody here is the boss of you. Um, we, we happen to, like, live in a— you know, a particular cultural moment where we all very much exercise our personal free will and liberty. And listen, that's a good thing, right? Last thing I want, last thing I want is to like, you know, go back hundreds of years to where the, like the church was this powerful force um, and, and, and the religious structures and systems actually got to regulate 
whole communities of people. That is, that's a terrible, terrible way for the church to exist, right? I'm, I'm much happier um, for the fact that we all, by our own free will, come in and engage in this conversation and in this life community. But I also recognize, like, you know, you have the right to not come back next Sunday. Whether that's to make the decision to go to some other place that more suits your fancy or to just stop going at all, right? I, 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 we're, we're, I'm not telling you where to go to lunch. I'm not telling you what to do. Uh, I, I just, I don't have that kind of authority over you. Nobody does. And so we highly prize and value and regard the free will that every one of us has here. And this is where admonishment becomes so valuable, right? Because admonishment, it allows us to build into the culture of the way we live with one another, an opportunity to speak in love, a, a desire for, for your best interest, for my best interest, right? And like, listen, this is a two-way street, right? This doesn't just come, you know, um, you know, from this lofty platform up here down that way, right? It goes both ways. And so, um, so Paul, he makes this distinction between shame and admonishment. And then he says, listen, you, uh, you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul, here, he, I, if I were to rephrase, I think what the, he's trying to get across is this idea that he says, listen, within, within your life, within the sphere of your life, the circle of your world, you have a, an infinite number of people, right? Like he says, you have countless instructors. You have an infinite number of people who can correct you. How many of you know you got all kinds of people that can tell you what to do in your life, right? You live with some of them, right? And you go to work with others. And then, like, there are other people you even invite into that space where, you know, they get a voice in your life, right? There, there are countless people who can instruct us? But Paul says, but you don't have many fathers. That is, again, I think he's just trying to like open up his heart and say, listen, there are, there is a relatively small number of people who truly have your best interests at heart. You know that? I mean, we're gonna, like, we're gonna walk through this life, and there's gonna be all kinds of people that are going to try to um, influence or direct our behavior. Um, you know, every time you turn the TV on, right, you know, you watch football this afternoon, you're going to be inundated, right, unless you do like I do and watch the football game after. Right, fast forward the commercials, but, like, even then, they, fig they, figured out how to, they figured out how to advertise things even while I'm watching the game, right? So, um, but you turn on the television, what's going to happen? There's going to be people who have paid big, big, big dollars for the right to attract you, to manipulate you, to, uh, to steer you, right? To buy their thing, <laughs> to buy their stuff. Uh, what is that? Well, that's, that, that's, that, that, that's just a, one of a number of kinds of influences that are trying to uh, steer our behavior or our decision. Now, when, when the commercial comes on, right, and this new, um, this new medication comes out, um, that's, 
isn't it funny how like it's going to solve a problem but it's going to create like a hundred different other ones um i don't know why the pharmaceutical companies haven't been able to figure out how to just like can we just solve the problem and not introduce all these other ones but anyway like we might grant that the pharmaceutical company has our our best interests in mind, like our health, right? They want to save our lives or make, their, make our lives better. Is that, is that really the motivation behind the commercial? Is that really the motivation behind all of the research? Is that really the motivation behind all the investment that has gone into? Like, would all that have been done if there wasn't somebody making some big old cash at the end of the line there? Right? What do they want? Like, well, they, they want you, right? They, they, they want something from you. Um, we are constantly, constantly, constantly um, hit from all sides, uh, from people that don't have, or from uh, agencies that don't have, don't actually have our best interests at heart. And so we need, <laughs> we need to listen best to those voices um, that do actually have our best interests uh, at heart. And so, again, Paul, and we kind of talked about this some time ago, but Paul, he recognizes that there's some slippage that's taken place in the church, right? That uh, he's, again, he's trying to bring them back, bring them back, because they've steered away from, and they've they kind of veered off the track of the, the, like, the most important thing. And they have become a church community that, um, you know, that really they should not have become. So Paul's trying to bring them back. Um, I had to ask, like, um, like, as Paul, the father of, like, he points out, you know, I'm the father of your faith, and listen, there's going to be other people that are going to try and steer you away from what was first instilled, what was first installed here, um, and Paul wants to bring it back. He recognizes that there is always the possibility that when it comes to uh, something like the very pure gospel, there's always the possibility that that gospel can be eroded over time, right? And so he's issuing them reminders um, to help them return back to what they had first received and embraced. And so I had to ask the question, like, why is it, why is there such a temptation to nuance the gospel? Um, both, like, Paul's dealing with this in the ancient church of Corinth, we continue to deal with it. Uh, today, it is this constant and ongoing battle uh, where, where, where people want to nuance the gospel, where they want to take the very um, central and simple message of the gospel, which is um, the Christ who suffered on the cross was crucified and is risen again. And if I could even take that and boil it down to just three simple words— the gospel is Christ is Lord, right? Like that was, that was the mantra. That was, uh, like that was the very central thing. Like that's what it meant to be a Christian. It was to confess with all of your heart, Christ is Lord, right? Um, when you expand that, it's okay, the Christ, that is um, Jesus, the Messiah, suffered on the cross. But the story didn't end at the cross. Instead, it opened to a new chapter of his resurrection. And now 
he is Lord. And that changes everything, right? Like that is the essence of the gospel. And, um, and Paul, in the first part of this letter, is reminding the, the Corinthian church, uh, like how they've moved away from that. Why? Well, as Paul pointed out, it, like Paul recognized that the, the message of the cross, which was foolishness to the world, which was powerlessness to the world. It didn't fit. It doesn't fit what we want. Um, you know, sometimes we find that we grow bored with the simple message of the gospel, and so we try to make something else out of it. We try to nuance it. We try to, like, we, 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 we try to help it to evolve to better serve, you know, our own fancy or um, our perceived fancy of this world. You know, it's kind of like... Um, Remember when, when, for whatever reason, I don't know exactly why they did it, but when Coke decided that it was going to change its formula, right? And what did they make? They made new Coke, right? You know why, right? Because Coke is gross, and they knew Pepsi was much better. Right. Right, I knew that would make some of you hate me. Um, right? Listen, <laughs> Coke knew it. Right? They, did, they did it, right? So they make new Coke. Um, this, 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 this formula that had kind of been uh, the thing for many, many, many years, right? It's like, all right, well, let's, let's fix it. And I don't know how long New Coke la lasted, but it didn't last very long, did it? Before they had to go back to uh, Coke Classic, right? Or just uh, the original formula. And listen, um, you know, the church has, from time to time, it has slipped into the same fault of trying to nuance or evolve or make the gospel something you know, other than what it really is. Uh, they do it in, sometimes they add to it. Uh, religious institutions have done a fantastic job of taking the gospel and then adding all kinds of extra ingredients to it until all of a sudden the gospel has been completely shrouded and no longer bears any resemblance to the gospel at all. Or they start stripping away from the gospel, right? Nuancing it, involving it, making it, something less than what, uh, or taking away the implications of the true and pure gospel. Um, but Paul's desire is to find a church full of people who are, and he uses these words, in Christ. Like what Paul wants for all of us is he wants for us to be in Christ. Uh, four times, in just a couple of verses, Paul uses these words, in Christ or in the Lord, right? The goal of Paul's instruction for them the goal of spiritual maturity is that we all be found in Christ. What does that mean, to be in Christ? Well, it means for us to experience union with Christ. Like, my question for you today would be, are you in Christ? Like, right now you're in a church, right? Like, you're literally sitting in a church building. You're literally sitting among the church, right? But the bigger question is, are you in Christ, is your life found in Christ? Are you actually experiencing union with Christ? Um, uh, Paul, like this is a big theme for him, uh, you know, in, in other places um, where he's written. He talks about being baptized into Christ. Uh, we still use the symbol of baptism, right? Immersing a person in water as kind of a physical and tangible symbol of that person doing something, um, uh, going away from what was old and embracing something that is new. Uh, how many of you like 
the picture of the idea of following Jesus. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Following Jesus, right? I mean, um, how many of you are following Jesus or trying to follow Jesus, right? We use those words all the time. Think about what that means. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Can you follow Jesus and sit on your butt? Right? No, what does following, what does following inherently mean? It means movement, right? It means, it, 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 it means going. It, it, um, it means essentially leaving something and embracing something else. Uh, for anybody that might say, you know, I'm following Jesus, who can't answer the question, well, what is it that you've left? And what is it that you're embracing? What, what is it that's new that you're embracing? If, if a person can't really answer that question, I, 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 I'd want to challenge, you know, whether or not that person has actually, you know, begun um, this life of following Jesus. And so Paul says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me, right? Again, he's trying to bring him back. And, and he says some pretty preposterous words. <laughs> I urge you to imitate me. Now, how many of you would like it if I came up here and said, listen, we're going to keep it short this week. Um, best advice I got for you is I just want you to imitate me. Right? Just imitate me. Um, like, I want you to dress like me. <laughs> like, you want to you wanna, you wanna know how to grow a church real small? Right? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, these are, that's, can you imagine? Paul... Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. Now, I'm not going to tell you to imitate me, okay? Um, but I would love, I would love, you know, for my life to be moving in a direction, you know, where I could pretty confidently encourage another person to imitate me. And so my question for us this morning is, is your life worth imitating? Like, are you living the kind of life that's worth imitating? Are you living the kind of life where you would happily bring along somebody maybe that isn't quite as far in the journey as you are and say, listen, like, there's lots to learn, and we're going to, you know, this is, a, this is a long and lifelong process, and, like, we're going to go through it together, but, like, I just want to encourage you, like, imitate me. Is our, are our lives worth imitating? And then, um, and then Paul, he again points out, a couple weeks ago, we talked about, like, the problem of arrogance, the problem of pride, right? And he says, listen, some are arrogant. Again, he's just, he's, he's really trying to kind of bring this to the surface, Remember, arrogant, it, it means to be puffed up, right? Uh, to be full of air. Uh, which means that while there were some within the Corinthian church who um, they looked, they appeared to be bigger and more important than they actually were, uh, the reality is they were very, very fragile, right? They were like that balloon that was overinflated and about to burst. And Paul says, there are some, there are some among you who are puffed up. There are some among you who are arrogant. Now, What's interesting is that um, the sum probably represents a smaller number. You know, it's uh, those who are guilty of this problem of pride and arrogance and, and of being puffed up is probably a relatively small number of people within the church. But listen to the, the um, incredible warning here um, that while, while those who were... Um, who are leveraging their influence, um, who are leveraging their power, 
uh, were relatively small in number, it had disastrous effects within the whole community. Um, Paul here, he seems to be suggesting that the biggest troubles were coming from inside the church, not from the outside. Um, you know, as a church, like, we have to understand that while there may be all kinds of challenges that we have that feel like they're kind of coming from the outside, the reality is our biggest challenge, our biggest challenges are always going to come from the inside. Some of you experienced this. Some of you have experienced, you know, walking through, you know, the life of a church where the, ch- the church was, um, it was destroyed or it was just rendered utterly dysfunctional, not because like the government imposed, you know, some particular thing or because some outside influence, you know, happened to, um, you know, to do something. No, the, the, the greatest difficulties a church is likely ever to face, they're always going to come from the inside. And so, uh, you know, Paul, he's, again, like, he's, he's, he's warning, he's cautioning, he's admonishing the church. You know, don't let, don't let this happen. Don't, don't let this like work up and well up within your church community. There's just too much uh, at stake. And so let me close with um, uh, how Paul then like calls to account those who are um, causing all this trouble um, and, you know, ultimately his conclusion on the matter. Paul, again, he points out those who are puffed up and he says, um, says, I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Now, this just sort of brings kind of full circle this whole thing uh, about the adversity that was being experienced between Paul and this church community. The puffed up ones, right, these people that Paul's pointing out, they were critical of Paul's um, logos, the Greek word, uh, the Greek word that we've kind of been um, uh, seeing come up over and over again in these first four chapters is this logos, right? When Paul talks about um, his preaching, right, the, this this uh, this word, this proclamation that he's had. So they were uh, they were uh, they were critical of Paul's message uh, because Paul's message. It was contradicted by the world's way of wisdom. And so now Paul, he says, all right, I'm going to bring your logos to the center. He says, when I come to you, I'm going to discover whether or not your church, whether this church community is ultimately marked by a whole lot of empty talk. Talk that you think is wise, talk that you think meets the criteria of worldly wisdom, um, the type of talk that you think meets the criteria of the elite and the established. We're going to find out whether or not there's any real substance to it. See, what makes the gospel, the true gospel, so compelling, because I believe with all my heart that the true gospel is incredibly compelling. But what makes it so compelling is not simply the truth of the matter. And I believe it's true. I believe the gospel is true with all my heart. But it's not just simply the truth. It's not just simply the axiom 
right? That we might say, you know, well, this is true or this is right. What makes it so compelling is how it is accompanied by the dynamic power of God's spirit. This is what makes the difference. It's not just the fact that the gospel is true. It's that it is accompanied by God's spirit and God's power. And why would we expect it to be anything less? Paul here refers to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom was inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ, by one who was dead, who came back to life. It was inaugurated by the introduction of God's spirit coming democratically into the lives of every single person who would become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that many churches have gone the way of becoming a resurrection-less kind of community. One that has abandoned or forgotten the power that God wants to accompany the incredible truth that he wants us all to know. And how is that power demonstrated? Well, it's, it's demonstrated in uh, the, the real transformation of life. It's demonstrated in God changing our lives from the inside out. It is about God taking that which was dead and bringing it back to life. I want you to know this morning that God still intends to raise the dead you know, some of us are here today and there's just parts of our lives that have died or that feel dead, that feel without life. And I believe that if we will just allow for God's spirit to move in our hearts and to pervade our lives, to interfere with our desires and our ambitions and our own dreams, I believe God will bring the kind of change, the change that can only be described as bringing that which was dead back to life. That's not a church. That's not a spiritual community that is just full of a bunch of words, but rather one that embraces the very power of God. And that's the kind of church I want for us to be. I hope you do too.